This is KMUW, Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on February 27th at Roxy's downtown. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. We're very pleased to see such a wonderful crowd with us tonight. Thank you for being here. Uh, before we get started, we want to thank two very important partners of KMUW in this endeavor. First of all, Roxy's Downtown for the venue and the food. Uh, and secondly, Wichita Public Library, which provides fabulous uh, further resources for you uh, that you can check out from the library or check out online. Um, there are resources from uh, the topic that we're going to discuss today, as well as all of the previous topics that we've covered for Engage ICT. So a round of applause for the library as well. And I have to say, they are, they are really good resources, so you should really check them out. Um, so for tonight, we have an excellent panel in store. Um, and before we get started, I want to just sort of kick it off with this thought that uh, when you think about mandating health, the first thing to come to mind is probably insurance-related health legislation. And because that subject is so often covered in the media, we've decided to leave it off completely from our discussion tonight. And instead, uh, we will talk about the little laws that add up to and contribute to a lifestyle in our community. So. Uh, rather than getting into Medicaid expansion, we're going to focus on local legislation and statewide health initiatives. Uh, there is lots to talk about regarding that, and so that's what we will be up to this evening. So now uh, we will uh, have the panel introduce themselves and, uh, and kind of give you a little bit about, uh, about themselves and about kind of what brought them here tonight their their paths. So we'll start out with Becky Tuttle, uh, who is with the uh, Health and Wellness Coalition of Wichita. Good evening, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for including me this evening. I told Sarah my name is Becky Pattison Tuttle. I go by Becky P. Tuttle, and my staff says the P stands for policy. Uh, so I was super excited about this topic. I was so bummed with the weather last week because I was all excited to come, so glad to be here. I'm the Executive Director for Community Development with the Greater Wichita YMCA, and I have the privilege of being the chair of the Health and Wellness Coalition of Wichita that focuses on physical activity, specifically active transportation and access to healthy foods. And I'm also the chairperson of the Health Alliance, which is a group that mobilizes around our 2017 to 2019 Community Health Improvement Plan for Sedgwick County. And I'm the chair of the Kansas Public Health Association. Oh, yeah, I mean that. Yeah. <laughs> Once you're doing nothing else, right? Uh, I'm Tom Shine of KMUW. Uh, what brought me here was Sarah Jane brought me here saying we need someone to fill in on the panel because Jim McLean, who is uh, with the Kansas News Service and who I work with, is sick. Um, today and uh, so rather than make him drive from Topeka with the flu we thought we could I could fill in so I'm the fill-in guy here uh, I'm director of uh, news and public affairs from KMUW I've only been there since December but uh, I have a 38 year background with the Wichita Eagle where I was an editor and reporter for a number of years I'm familiar with uh, health policy uh, on many levels um, including Medicaid policy which I studied up on but now apparently I'm not allowed to talk about uh, which <laughs> It's, I'm going to try to slip that in somewhere, <laughs> um, if I can. 
um, but uh, but I'm familiar with uh, many of the health issues that have gone on, including the uh, smoking campaign, which started in my, in my lifetime. We've seen many, many changes that now seem normal to people, seat belts, um, smoking laws, uh, uh, 21-year-old to drink, that seemed normal, but at the time were, were very large policy fights, and we can probably talk about some of the ones that are on the horizon um, for us as well. Good evening. I am Elizabeth Avila. I am an associate professor at the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Wichita, and uh, I'm in the Department of Preventive Medicine and Public Health. I am very interested in policy systems and environmental changes, what's often uh, referred to as PSE. Uh, those types of changes are really attractive to me because uh, we tend to look at systems uh, and environments and um, policies as opposed to thinking about individual behavior change. Uh, it recognizes that we are all in an ecosystem and we all have multiple environments and policies that influence us. Uh, so it it's, it's tends to be a, a bit of a more mindful process than just thinking about individual behavior change as if we all are uh, free agents and are thinking uh, independently as if we have all new thoughts when in fact we all have very similar ideas uh, that are very much constructed and uh, driven by uh, our policies, environments, and systems. Thank you. Let's have a round of applause for our panel. Thank you very much. Um, and Elizabeth, I'd like to kick it off with you if you would kind of give us an overview from, from your vantage point of uh, Wichita's uh, kind of wellness landscape over maybe the last decade or, or the past history um, and kind of where we've been. So I can speak to that. Um, Becky is really the... Uh, I've never said Becky is the P before, but um, that <laughs> it kind of fits. Um, when... Uh, uh, my work, uh, I do a lot of work around worksite wellness, and so the types of changes around worksite wellness have been um, pretty significant over the last several years in this state, uh, and uh, obviously including Wichita. Uh, we, I've also been involved in different types of uh, policy and um, work around uh, the built environment in this community, and also looking at uh, what are some changes that might need to be made uh, around groundwater uh, and what we've learned are some some pretty big problems that have really not been addressed in our community. Uh, the landscape, uh, I think, as uh, I guess the best way I would describe the landscape in the city of Wichita and any community for that matter uh, is often by how we feel about our community. Uh, I think the propagation of the Wichita flag uh, has grown by leaps and bounds, and that has changed very significantly how a lot of people feel about our community. Uh, some, some people say it's a fake it till you make it, uh, but a lot of people are starting to really fall in love with our community as if this is the first time. Um, but uh, there are changes that have been made in our communities that I think, uh, for instance, in, in Wichita, uh, the bike lanes on 1st and 2nd Streets and uh, also on uh, Emporia, Emporia? Yes, Emporia and St. Francis. Uh, those are pretty phenomenal. And uh, having a change like that, those are both one way, or both, there are four streets, hello. I'm also uh, fluent in English. Um, uh, 
but all four of them are one-way streets, and uh, the addition of a bike lane has uh, changed that uh, pretty considerably. And we actually have a master public health student right now working on analyzing uh, have have has safety improved for cyclists in that area. Uh, what about the speed? Has it slowed down? It tends to uh, changes like that tend to slow automobiles down. Uh, and we're also looking at uh, the economic take. Uh, often we think about this from a health perspective because we want people to be healthy and we want people to be safe while they're on their cycle, bicycle for instance. Uh, however, we need to be able to make an economic argument as well that this improves our quality of life and uh, it's measurable that through property tax. Uh, so we, we plan to be looking at that as well. So um, that's a very broad introduction. Uh, I don't know if that's, you're probably thinking of something exactly opposite. No, that, okay. that was great. Do either of you want to kind of add to some of that picture? Tom, you were talking about the, yeah, absolutely. Becky, you can. <laughs> I just wanted to add, um, from the Health and Wellness Coalition perspective and also from the Health Alliance, we focus and we think about policy in terms of little p and big P. And so we find that some of our most successful initiatives come from little p, which means maybe where you live, learn, earn, play, or pray. So having a policy change at your work site, having a policy change at your school, at your organization. And, and that's exactly what happened in clean and door air in our state and really across the nation, where we went to the schools and got them to pass uh, clean and door air and no smoking within the buildings. And then we went to hospitals. And then we went to work sites. And then we got a critical mass of support and then went to, to our city. And then after we went to our city, we were able to go to our state. And so we focus a lot of our initiatives with building that community momentum. And so it may not always be getting to the city council. There's a lot of groundwork that we do first. Uh, one of the things that we consistently say when we do policy work, both little p and big p, is that you build your friendships before you need friends. And so we make sure that while we're building our momentum and that we're building our case and providing our support, both economic and health, that you know we're not just going to city council or county commission or state legislators when we want something. They already know us as a trusted and reliable source long before we get there. Um, we mentioned tobacco, mentioned physical activity. Something that we work significantly on as well is access to healthy foods. The Health and Wellness Coalition did a study on food deserts, why you should care back in 2013, and then a subsequent study on the hurdles to healthy food access. 25% of our population, 44 square miles of food deserts in our community, and how do we address that? So we've been working with the city to try and change ordinances to allow more farmers markets, to make it easier to have mobile markets, to have it to have ordinances changed so people can sell produce from their own gardens, which right now you're not able to do. Um, and then the last thing I thought I should mention real quick just regarding local is the F word. Anybody know what the F word was? Fluoride, yeah. So uh, in a past life, I was with the Wichita Cedric County Oral Health Coalition and with other community partners, and we really tried to launch an, a robust campaign to have our water uh, have water fluoridation at the optimal level. Uh, and that was something that, unfortunately, we were not successful, but not have not given up hope yet. Um, but when when I talk with folks and. Uh, when we do presentations with the Health and Wellness Coalition and the Health Alliance about our policy initiatives, we always say we're loud and local. We want people to know that we're here, and we want people to know that we care deeply about this community economically, but then also for the health of our community. 
Now, as our discussion continues, if you all hadn't noticed, there should be some uh, question slips on the table. Um, go ahead and fill those out if you have questions for the panel, and Alexis will come around and collect those periodically through the evening, and uh, we encourage questions. So, uh, Becky, when did you get started doing this work? Uh, I really started when I moved to the state of Kansas in 2002. I had done some other policy initiatives, but when I w first moved to Kansas in 2002, my husband and I said, we'll just be here two years. So we, we don't do math well at the Tuttle House, um, but after all these years, we're still here and, and grounded deeply in this community. And I worked for the Tobacco Use Prevention Program with the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, and one of our, our real goals was to provide technical assistance to local coalitions across the state who were trying to pass clean indoor air ordinances so that we could have the critical mass to be able to have a statewide law that was passed. So since around 2002. And what has surprised you the most about this community and the health landscape here? Um, that's a great question. I think that the most probably surprising thing is that when we do come together for a common cause, there are such a variety of partners. If I think about right now the folks that are involved with the Food Policy Committee and the work that we're trying to do to increase access to healthy foods through Big P and Little P, uh, it's, if you look around the table and it's people who actually grow the food to people who are city council members, to people who are health advocates, to people who just care, um, and it's not anywhere in their job jar or their job description. They just want the community to be better. So I'm always pleasantly surprised when I see an initiative and we have real momentum in the diversification that's involved. Tom, I want to move to you a little bit and talk about um, at, when you got started with reporting and you, you mentioned seatbelts and all of these laws that were a big fight at the time. What do you think has made the biggest impact on public health that you've witnessed? Probably, probably all the smoking stuff that we've gone through, and it's so odd now when uh, my son recently moved from Las Vegas, was working in Las Vegas for a while, and they have not adopted many of the smoking things that we have, and it was so odd to go to a restaurant where people smoked. It was just, it was, it was, it was also irritating as well. That, that, that was a very big one, and again, again, I think there's a whole generation of people who have grown up now just assume that that's what it is. They... Well, I used to tell young people at the, I worked at the Eagle for a long time, that used to be able to smoke at your desk at the Eagle. They were like, what? Right here? I said, yeah, right, you sit right here and light up a cigarette. You're kidding me. No, right here. They just, they just couldn't get that. And you could smoke on airplanes, um, which was unbelievably, when you think about it now, they have a, a whole airplane full of people smoking, even though they made them sit in the back of the plane. And that's where the smokers sat. But I think that's been a huge one. I think uh, there's no question that, Secondhand smoke, in addition to smoking itself, are bad for you and lead to all kinds of other health issues. So that's been a big one uh, here. I mean, most Wichita restaurants when I first came here, besides not being able to get a drink, um, you had smoking and non-smoking areas. Well, not really. It was all smoking because it all smelled like smoke. So to me, that was a huge, a huge thing. And I think one of the first really big battles that the Health Foundation kind of got behind and, and, and pushed and and made sense, and I think anywhere you go now, whole entire college campuses now are smoking free. I um, mean, it just that's been a. I think that's been a huge, a huge push forward, and people were worried about it, and, and it's worked out. And I don't know if all three of you want to give an opinion on this one, but what do you think is our next big fight, policy-wise, as a community? Whether that's Wichita or whether it's the state, um, what are we moving toward now, and what are we wrestling over now? 
you mentioned fluoride. I don't. I don't know if we have the fortitude for fluoride right now. I, I wish. Um, I think that that's going to probably have to. Some other things are going to have to change, including restoring funding for our county health department, so that some of those positions can be reinstated, so that we have technical assistance and infrastructure to make that happen. But I think some things that in 2018 are on our radar and some of our partners' radars are considering adding electronic cigarettes to the clean indoor air ordinance. Many communities across the state have already done that. That's something that we feel would be important. We don't know enough what's in electronic cigarettes right now to know if they're safe enough for people to have exposure to them. So that's something that we would like to see happen here. We're also interested in T21. T21 is changing the legal age of smoking from 18 to 21. The literature says that that really does, it's impactful, and it not only um, encourages people to not start smoking because they don't have as much access, but also can be a reason for them to quit. Um, we're also interested from the Health and Wellness Coalition and the Health Alliance perspective, uh, again, on the built environment. Liz mentioned we have a Wichita Master Pedestrian Plan, a Wichita Bicycle Plan, uh, and continuing to support those initiatives so that we can keep adding more infrastructure to make our transportation by methods other than a car safe and reliable. I just want to have you follow up about the, the bike share uh, ICT project um, and maybe describe how it's being tracked and what you consider a success with that project. Yeah, we feel that Bike Share ICT is a huge success. We're so proud of the initiative and what it's brought to our community. Uh, I think one thing that I always mention to people that they're surprised by is when I wrote the application for Bike Share ICT funding, I didn't mention the word health once, which is the first time in my career that I've considered an application and done that. I wrote the application strictly on the premise of economic development for our community and attracting and retaining young talent. And indeed, that has been one of the outcomes outcomes. We know that we've we've burned over 11 million calories. We know that we've had about 8,500 rides since we launched, but we also know the demographics very clearly are age 25 and under who are utilizing bike share ICT. And we have other riders as well, but that's the vast majority. So for us, that's considered a success. We have about 4,500 members, so thank you to everyone who's a member of bike share ICT. If you're not, uh, please go to bikeshareict.com, shameless plug, bikeshareict.com, for $30 a year, which is less than a tank of gas, you can become an annual member with unlimited rides. We also have the second highest bike share utilization per capita of any city in the nation. So we're extremely proud of that. And our funder, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas, is so excited about the progress that we've made that they have graciously agreed to let us double the program in 2018. So right now we have 105 bikes on the ground, and we would anticipate by this next year we'd probably have around 200 bikes on the ground. Tom, oh, Yay. go ahead. <laughs> what do you think is uh, the kind of the health battle that's uh, policy-wise that is uh, coming for us now? Well, I, w I, won't, I won't say Medicaid because I'm not allowed to say that. But well, but you can I, talk I, about it a little if you really you? want okay. to. Right. I think I think what's the in, in my mind the next policy battle anyway is somehow getting insurance to underserved communities. I think many many people. Probably many people in this room have insurance through their employers or, or some other their way. We have many, many underserved communities in Wichita who, who don't have access to insurance. We also have a large rural population that does not have access to health care, easy access to health care. 
Um, and, and I would include uh, not only medical, but uh, oral care as well. And I, I forget what the number of counties that don't have a dentist in the state, but it's, it's a whole bunch, a whole bunch. Um, and to me, uh, you'll never figure out the health thing until you find a way to encompass everybody inside that. And whether that's through an expansion of a certain program or finding programs that work. In Wichita, we, you know, we're lucky we have a, a whole bunch of uh, clinics, free clinics, clinics that served underrepresented uh, groups, uh, people don't have insurance or underinsured. You know, we have a lot of those here and great volunteers and organizations that run those. Uh, we are not the norm. There are many, most cities don't have that. Most small towns don't have that. So somehow reaching out and then part of the, the Medicaid thing again is the impact it has on rural hospitals that can't stay open and are or struggling financially. So that's exacerbating a problem that's already there. Um, and to me, you can't, until you figure that part of it out to make healthcare available to all populations, uh, to me that's the next big fight. Elizabeth, what do you think? Um, so I would agree with everything that has been stated. I guess for a different perspective, um, there, there's something that uh, is known in public health as health in all policies. Uh, and so we often think about these topics that have been raised, and uh, I would agree that these are the forthcoming issues that uh, are going to be addressed. But there are a lot that need to be addressed and can be addressed. Um, when we think about health and all policies, the idea, the exercise is to be able to identify a specific policy or a project or a program uh, that we don't necessarily think or that is, is tied to health in any way. And then there's a series of analyses that are conducted using all sorts of different types of data and stakeholders to uh, identify what are the potential health impacts of this policy or this project or this program. Uh, so uh, I think that as a practice is a really, uh, it could be really useful, it could be a very constructive practice that we probably need to be implementing more. Uh, for instance, if we think about our highways, just go with Kellogg. Uh, we spend a lot of money on Kellogg, a lot of money on Kellogg, and uh, we don't really, uh, it, it does not help our economics, uh, it actually is detrimental, uh, and we know very clearly it does not help our health, uh, it is, uh, again, detrimental, uh, but you can get to Andover like a couple of minutes faster maybe, um, so uh, there's there's a, uh, I think a real need to start identifying the policies and uh, various programs that we are putting into place and uh, identify what are the potential health impacts as a result of those because we tend to make decisions without necessarily c thinking about the contributions to health or the lack thereof. So one thing I'm curious about, none of you has mentioned um, sugar or processed foods. Can we get into that a little bit? Um, you know, it being linked to cancer it would be a, a big thing in my mind. What, uh, Elizabeth, you look like you want to jump in on yeah. this one. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. No. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting issue. Uh, I'll say probably about 10, 8, 10 years ago, we did a study where we uh, assessed all of the legislators in Kansas and asked them what their thoughts would be of implementing a sugar tax uh, on a, a tax on sugar sweetened beverages. Was this with you? Might have been. Yeah, it was. 
Yep. <laughs> and uh, we uh, identified loud and clear, like there was no ambiguity on this one. They are not interested, even when the funds would go towards something like, you know, prevention uh, of, of uh, you know, where we'd have better access to uh, healthy foods, fruits and vegetables and whatnot. Uh, that was not of interest. Uh, I will say there is quite a bit of research internationally that's being done around uh, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. And there's some really interesting literature that's emerging out of it. Uh, so anytime that there is some type of a policy, again, whether it is, or, or a program for that matter, but for the sake of, of conversation, a policy, there are intended consequences uh, and there are unintended consequences. And uh, there are unintended consequences associated with the sugar tax, specifically sugar-sweetened beverage tax. Uh, the folks who tend to use uh, sugar-sweetened beverage tax, excuse taxes, good grief. Those who tend to use sugar-sweetened beverages more tend to be lower income. Uh, that there's a higher proportion uh, of the uh, beverages consumed in that among the population. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about uh, how we construct our taxes and how we're going to be paying for various initiatives and on whose back. Uh, so there's some really interesting research around um, equity with this issue, uh, not suggesting, gosh, no, let's not do anything. Uh, but how do we do this in a way that will actually be more equitable in the end with health impacts? Becky, can you explain a little bit about equity versus equality? That was one of your... Yeah, that was one of the things I was just going to jump in. And um, we, the, the Health and Wellness Coalition of Wichita has the great fortune right now to have funding from the Kansas Health Foundation for a grant focusing on health equity. And when we designed our application, we titled it The Moved and the Shaken. Because oftentimes when we're trying to do work in our community, we always say, we need the movers and the shakers. We need the movers and the shakers. You want the decision makers and the people who are able to make things happen at the table. And that's important, and you do need to have those, but we oftentimes forget about the moved and the shaken, and who's being affected by the work that we're doing. And Liz brought up a great example with the sugar-sweetened beverage tax. The same discussions have been had if you, re and I'm fully in support of increasing the tobacco sales tax statewide, but that's an issue that also comes up. Even when we were thinking about ordinances to expand the farmer's markets, we were realizing that some of the producers may actually be hurt by the language that we were suggesting. So focusing on who's going to be affected by the work that we do has become a top priority for the Health and Wellness Coalition. And health equity, and especially now with this funding source, is giving us reason to intentionally pause and not just continue to do and to do and to do, but to really slow down and think about what we're going to do and what will be the lasting impacts and who will be affected by those lasting impacts. In doing some research before uh, I showed up today, I was amazed at how many countries around the world have sugar taxes. I mean, there's dozens of them. I was just, I was sort of flabbergasted by that. Um, and uh, and almost all of them use that money for prevention of some sort. Some use it for uh, for uh, early childhood education, but some type of uh, some type of give back on that. Um, but the problem is, is that yes, yeah, so who does the tax fall upon? Um, same thing with the smoking tax. Um, it, it's, it, it impacts groups somewhat uh, disproportionately, so you have that problem. 
And you, then you also get into the whole nanny state thing. You know, are you, like, don't tell me that I can't drink a big gulp if I don't want to drink a big gulp, and I'll drink it if I want to, and you know that sort of stuff there. What personal responsibility versus the state being involved? But again, I go back to the to the cigarette thing again. I mean, people were losing their minds when they said you can't smoke inside a restaurant. Oh, we don't. We, I mean, just we're just really just and, and people thought oh, that'll never happen. Well, it did, uh, and no one thinks twice about it anymore. Don't even they don't even, don't even think about it anymore. Um, so to say that something is impossible, um, I mean, again, I'm my life my life a little bit longer than many people up here on the panel. But when what used to buy cars back in the day. Back in the day, seatbelts were an option. You paid extra for seatbelts. Yeah. Right. And then people said, well, I, yeah, I'll get that, but I don't want the seatbelts because they cost extra. So no one had seatbelts in a car because they cost money. Um, now, they don't even think about it. They come with the car, and, and there's no ashtrays in your car anymore. I mean, but there are seatbelts. So, so it, it takes time sometimes, but it, it'll, I think it'll happen, and I think it'll happen because the public will say, yeah, this is not good. This makes sense. Um, it's going to have a good impact on the community, um, like bike trails and, and walking trails. They make sense for the overall health of the community, make us a more attractive community um, in some ways. Um, so why don't we do it? Becky, can you talk a little bit about the Food Policy Committee? Sure. So as I mentioned, in 2013, the Health and Wellness Coalition launched our Food Deserts, Why You Should Care study, and then the, the hurdles to healthy food access. And so when we realized we had 25, 44 square miles of food deserts, our Health and Wellness Coalition leadership team was very astute and said, this is great, this is fine, we know this, but now what are we gonna do about it? And so our second study, the hurdles to healthy food access, we went into three zip codes that were deemed to be entire food deserts. And we did key informant interviews with 75 individuals approximately in each of those food deserts. And we asked them two simple questions. If you eat healthy, how and why? And if you don't eat healthy, why not? And we left it very broad to what they thought healthy would be. And it was one of the most interesting experiments we've, I've ever done in my life, and I was so glad to be a part of the process. But we heard six continual themes throughout. And we heard that transportation was an issue, cost was an issue, uh, lack of knowledge and understanding was an issue. So when we came back and we resonated with those six themes, we realized that something had to be done. So the Health and Wellness Coalition developed a five-year strategic plan for healthy eating in our community, and that was really the genesis of the Food Policy Committee, because we realized systems and environmental changes were going to be needed to make most of that happen. So we have been really in existence now for about the last three years, and focusing on a lot of little P work, um, working specifically, for example, uh, one of the cool things that we've done is with the Kansas Food Bank. Bank, and we help them to change their procurement policy. So with items that they procure the most, is it a possibility that if cost is an equal issue, so let's say they're going to buy applesauce, and if non-sweetened, if unsweetened applesauce and regular applesauce are the same price, they have a policy that now that they, they will buy the unsweetened applesauce. So if cost is not an issue, then they will go with the healthier options. From there, we went and we've developed now a policy, a guidance document, and it's on Again, a shameless plug, Health and Wellness Coalition website, hwcwichita.org, and we have a healthy food donation policy. So if at Tuttle Inc., we're going to have a food donation um, drive around the holidays, 
is we would hope that Tuttle Inc. would pass a policy that says we're going to ask only for healthy foods. Because even if you are food insecure, you still have, um, we want you to have the ability to have healthy food. So um, from that, from doing some of that little policy work, now we're working with the city council and focusing on some of the larger policy issues, citywide laws that need to be, we feel need to be changed so that everyone has access to healthy foods. Did you want to jump in, Elizabeth? I might. Uh, so Becky's got it on uh, going on with uh, the city and um, the county. There are trends that are uh, very important when we think about at, at a, for food uh, and beverages, but specifically we'll look at food, uh, that are happening in the United States and in Kansas in particular that very much impact uh, our communities and, and how healthy we are. Uh, so when you think about the USDA, uh, the USDA is very clear in the guidance. Uh, so it used to be the pyramid and now it is the... It's not your plate, it's my plate. <laughs> I can see we are not up to speed on our USDA guidelines. We will start into that lecture next. No. And so, uh, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, so it used to be the pyramid, it's now my plate. And the idea is uh, now it, there are some ideas of portions, uh, and the grains are supposed to be. Oh, excellent. <laughs> there was one person. I'm very, very proud. And, uh, and the, the, the protein is supposed to be lean. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, half of your plate, in other words, half of your consumption, and I do have a problem with it because, of course, how many of you eat breakfast off of a plate? Right. How many of you eat lunch off of a plate? Right. How many of you eat dinner off of a plate? Okay, so we're still voting, I'm hoping. Um, so, yes, exactly. So a lot of people think, you know, to get a couple green beans in and maybe a chunk of watermelon and, woo, they got their fruits and vegetables for the day. Uh, but really, the, the idea, it, we need to be, it's a consumption of half of, of, your, of your, uh, all of the foods that you eat during the day. So let's go back to USDA. Uh, they are also the folks who provide subsidies. And uh, where are we with our subsidies on, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I want to say, and I, I, I'll have to get the numbers, but I want to say it's 63, 62, 63% of our subsidies go towards meat. You got it. Uh, beef in particular, but meat. You got it. Uh, then uh, what percent of our subsidies goes towards legumes? 2%. And what about fruits and vegetables? Less than 1%. So let's just be real cognizant. When we, when we hear the guidance, that it's important for you to be educated, right? You're supposed to know all this stuff. But when it comes down to it, the environment really does not support it. So it, it creates a sort of madness. Uh, that you have to be this this warrior in a grocery store, or in a restaurant, or whatever, trying to figure out, is there a damn thing that I can eat that looks in even, I mean, I've never seen in my life, I've never seen a restaurant, a, a meal, a plate that looks like my plate. Uh, like, USDA is my plate. I know what my plate looks like. Uh, 
but so so there's that, uh, and, and then also when you think about fruits and vegetables, and I'll stop after this. Um, when you think about fruits and vegetables, um, it is there's a, a very clear linear relationship. The further you are from a grocery store, and I'm talking about a grocery store, not a, like a, a quick trip. Quick trip. Thank you. Uh, the further you are, literally the distance you are, the further you are, the less likely you are to eat fruits and vegetables. There is also a linear relationship. The further you are from a grocery store, the more likely you are to have a chronic disease. It's a linear relationship. It goes up. So, uh, you know, these are not uh, haphazard sort of experiences. Uh, these are very intentional decisions by a lot of folks, uh, and it's for profit. And uh, I, I think there is there are a lot of opportunities that we uh, we can jump on. Uh, Kansas State University has done a lot of work uh, to uh, build rural grocery stores and to continue to keep rural grocery stores. Uh, but it is, it's very challenging. It's a very challenging environment uh, and not supportive of our local e economies in any way. Looks pretty good, so I'm going to jump up there with her for a second. Um, so I encourage you again, if you need a little evening reading, it's great, you know, to read your children before you go to bed tonight. Go to Health and Wellness Coalition, hwcwichita.org. Click under Healthy Lifestyles, and the. Uh, Food Deserts, Why We Should Care study is there. And not only did we find that we have food deserts, we also found that in lower income zip codes, healthy foods cost more. Up to $2 more for a gallon of milk in lower income zip codes in our community. Fruits and vegetables cost more in lower income How areas. How does that happen? Why is that? It's Again, it's because of their profitability uh, and they are worried about spoilage. They're worried that it won't sell as much so they, they charge more. So if you are on a very limited budget and maybe you can only get to the grocery store. I've been to the grocery store three times this week and it's Tuesday. you know. But for some people, they get to go to the grocery store three times a month. And so if you go and you don't have the same access, not only being able to physically get there, but then once you get there, the healthy options are more expensive, you're not going to select them. Sort of a chicken and egg scenario. Um, so how do we prevent public health initiatives, um, bike lanes, beverage taxes, any of these things that we're talking about from being portrayed as elitist or for the upper class? I mean, that's sort of what it's uh, becoming or what it, what it looks like sometimes. Okay, I'm all over this one. <laughs> so, um, especially with, uh, I will say, active transportation. I'll speak to that first. And this is from the perspective of the Health and Wellness Coalition. But when we talk about access to physical activity, we're not always just thinking about mammals. And when we say mammals, we mean middle-aged men in Lycra. You know, you don't always have to, like, you know, put on spandex and come to where I work to be able to be physically active. As a matter of fact, we want you to be out in the community and be active. And so some of the work that we've done Done, and when I was at Health ICT prior coming to the YMCA was making sure that even on the bike lanes that we have, that when there's there's wayfinding, there's signage so you know this way is the keeper of the plane and that way is a trail. I don't know if you've noticed, but now they also have the federally qualified health centers, the safety net clinics, and where full service grocery star stores are. So that people who are utilizing that 
transit system, and it is a transit system, it's an active transportation system, now can also identify other places that they need to be to be able to take care of their health. So we're not just creating bike lanes. We always say with the Health and Wellness Coalition, we want everyone to be physically active. We want everyone to bike who wants to bike. But for us, we're, we're interested in recreation, but our main purpose is really transportation and creating a safe and reliable mode of transportation for everyone and not just on four wheels. Um, in addition to expanding bike and walking paths, are there any, any initiatives supporting improving existing infrastructure such as sidewalks or crosswalks in older neighborhoods? Yeah, again, um, through some of my work with Health and Wellness Coalition and then Health ICT and working in conjunction with the city. And again, as I mentioned before, you know, build your friendships before you need friends. We work with the city into, in any way that we can to implement the master pedestrian plan and the master bicycle plan. And so a few years ago, the Health and Wellness Coalition was able to secure $2.4 million from the Centers for Disease Control for a Community Transformation Grant. And the majority, the vast majority of that funding went to help prioritize portions of the master bike plan and the master pedestrian plan. Um, some successes have been specifically that resonate with me right now um, around senior living centers, trying to make more active transportation and safer around schools. So trying to prioritize areas where health equity is an issue. I can uh, speak to this also a little bit. Um, so there's this interesting statistic that I just learned about the city of Wichita. We have uh, a, a lot of crosswalks uh, in our community, and uh, it has been identified by city personnel that I, I want to say it's like 97% of the crosswalks are in need of repainting, most of them near schools, and uh, so they don't have the funds uh, to be able to have personnel, their their staff, to go out and do all of the painting, uh, uh, which is another conversation about uh taxes, which is also very much influential on health, but I will not go there. Um, but it, it, we do have a really interesting scenario now uh, that we are, our infrastructure is so poorly funded that we are unable uh, to have basic pedestrian infrastructure. Uh, and so one, one of the things that we are now looking at, uh, we're proposing and we're working with the city to see what is possible by law uh, so lawyer, their lawyers are getting involved. Uh, if we can get volunteers uh, to go out and do the painting, uh, there are legalities, liabilities, of course, and so we're looking at if a staff person would be able to oversee, but we get neighborhood associations and other groups of volunteers to get activated and excited about doing some of this work uh, that we would do with sort of a train the trainer and get people uh, to do that. And also have a little caveat that this is not a uh, long-term plan or solution that we need to be able to start funding our infrastructure in a way that we actually can support it. So hopefully that does work for you, but uh, are there also some other ways that people who are not directly involved in public health, uh, ways that they can help in addition to that, you know, if that does get to happen? Some thoughts? I know Becky has some thoughts. 
So I think one of the most important things that we could do in our community, and, and at the statewide level too, but specifically here in Wichita, is we always say at the Health and Wellness Coalition, if you like it and you love it and you want some more of it, you better let people who gave it to you know that. And when I say gave, I mean, you know, who people who, who invested time and treasure into it. And so when the city installs new bike lanes or if they do something to improve the infrastructure to make it easier to walk, or if we increase access to healthy foods in any capacity, make sure that you let your decision makers know that. Um, I've had some of our city council members say to me, you know, I'm not really hearing a lot from people about all the bike lanes. We should keep doing this, right? And I'm like, yeah, you should keep doing this. And, you know, I hope that we never in our community take some of some of these things for granted. Um, it seems innate that we want them, but it's, it's, it's costing people time and treasure to make it happen. So we do need to let your elected officials know that it's something that's important to you and that you're glad for it. Um, you know, write a letter to the editor, you know, call your city council member and say, hey, I just rode on the bike lane and it was great. Things like that really do matter. Um, and then one thing we always try and do too is just to make sure that, you know, we educate. And a lot of times people are scared of policy, they're scared of advocacy, um, you know, they don't wanna lose their job because maybe they can't because of the position they're in. But you can educate all day long, no matter what your role is. So make sure that you're letting people at where you live, learn, earn, play, and pray um, know what's important to you and what makes our community better. Um, and actually, while we're still on the topic of paths, biking, walking, um, can you tell us what permeable concrete is? And should the city consider requiring it for all business parking? Is that not? Does anyone know? This is an audience question. Oh, so I know a little, very, very little, um, just from the environmental perspective that that is uh, beneficial, that uh, we have a lot of concrete and that certainly doesn't help a lot of environmental aspects. Um, so I, um, I don't know enough to answer that, so I'm going to stop talking. Smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. We'll Google that. See if we can <laughs> let the questioner find uh, the answer that way. Um, so let's see. And this um, this one maybe goes back to uh, to subsidies. Uh, one of our audience members wants to know why a burger is a dollar, but a salad is six dollars. And I don't know if we can segue into lobbying a little bit. Elizabeth, go ahead. Okay, so when we're talking about USDA and subsidies, uh, that 50, no, 63-ish percent, that's a huge amount. That's a lot of money. Um, uh, if you eat beef, uh, the, uh, the beef that you consume is ridiculously subsidized. Uh, if you were to actually eat uh, a, a piece of beef uh, without the subsidies, you'd be paying hundreds of dollars. And uh, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of people uh, to prepare that in a way that is going to be safe for you to consume it. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, the, uh, the very highly processed foods uh, are much less expensive. Why is that? Because it's not food. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, that's a really important thing that, to think about. Like, if you can't identify what it is, it's a pretty good indicator. It's going to be probably pretty cheap. It was made cheaply, uh, poorly, and it uh, is not food. Uh, 
when you look at, uh, a lot of people say, you know, no, you can eat health, healthfully on a, a budget. Uh, and usually bananas uh, are the example provided, which I find fascinating. Yet have I met anyone who eats only bananas um, as a person, a human. Her mammals might, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, if a person is hungry, they're going to eat as much as they can that is actually consumes like a meal. Uh, and uh, the example often given is McDonald's, uh, 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 not a happy meal, what is it? A burger and fries or whatnot. Uh, will that fill someone up? Yeah. Uh, will an apple, it might be, you know, the same price or a similar price? No. So am I an advocate? No, you get that apple, mister. That doesn't make any sense. Um, instead, again, thinking about it from an individual perspective, what is the system that's driving that? And we're, our system is very, very intentional as to uh, creating an environment where it is next to impossible to find uh, a vegetable plate, uh, but uh, it's really easy for you to find a whole bunch of sliders and burgers and whatever, and they're very inexpensive. I kind of want to want you to follow that up a little bit. I mean, we're, we're getting into the other side of the coin. Legislation, you know, we, we want to talk about legislation that is intended to make the population healthier, but there's this whole other side of it that there's this legislation, essentially, or, or uh, the system is set up that kind of discourages that. What, uh, what is the action there? What can anyone do to, to move this? jump in. Um, so one of the things that the Health and Wellness Coalition, Health Alliance, Kansas Academy of Family Physicians, like throw in all the alphabet soup of acronyms that we know, um, for the last three years, we have held a candidate forum on health. And we did for the city council and the mayor election back when Jeff Longwell was elected. And then we did it for the county commission. And then we just did it again for the city council. And mark the date, yet another sh shameless plug, July 17th at 530 at venue 332, which is the Scottish Rite. We will have our next candidate forum on health for the Sedgwick County Board of County Commissioners. So July 17th at 530. But ask questions of your elected officials. What we do in that scenario and what we've done in the past is that we send the candidates who have all filed questions in the beginning um, before and we ask them, for example, during this last round with city council, we said less than 1% of our city's budget for transportation is allocated to active transportation. If you are elected, what would you recommend that it be? And we held them accountable to answering the question and provided them resources so that they could find the information. Uh, we will do the same thing with this county commission forum. It should be really lively and interesting if all the incumbents attend. Um, so bring your popcorn and come and join us for the evening. But one of the things that we really want to focus on is, you know, again, we want to be loud and local as a community that cares about our health. And even if, you know, health isn't anywhere in your title or the organization that you work for, everybody should care about our community and the health of our community. Work sites want to come to a vibrant, healthy community. If we want an economically vibrant community, we need a healthy community that can do the work. So, you know, really, even if you can't come to a candidate forum, even if that's not your gig, reach out to your elected officials, ask them questions, have them give you responses, and then make sure that you vote. 
Uh, one of the things that we also did with the Health and Wellness Coalition last year for the election was we had a Vote Like a Mother um, initiative where we worked with young families and said, you know, we don't have, if you haven't noticed in Wichita, we don't have mountains or beaches, but we have an awesome zoo and the coolest exploration place and lots of amenities that make this a family-friendly friendly community that need to be funded and maintained. And so, you know, vote like a mother with passion and, and intention. And then, you know, kind of the flip side was vote like a mother and get out there and do it like you mean it. So, you know, please make sure that when we have this next election in November that you're asking questions, you're meeting with your candidates any way that you can, and that you're being intentional in your voting. <clears throat> so she is very upright and uh, positive, and I feel like maybe I'm death and destruction. But um, so <laughs> a negative perspective, these are all good things that you need to do and can do and uh, uh, are very important to do. Uh, I would also encourage with along those lines that you consider running. Um, there, it is a totally messed up system that we have uh, for how we get the candidates we do. And uh, see, I'm back to death and destruction. I was really, uh, but uh, it, it is a really, it's a really big problem. And again, thinking about, for instance, lobbyists. Uh, the lobby, the lobbyists that are for, for instance, the uh, tobacco and for. Uh, gun regulation. I mean, there there are a number of uh, policies where the folks who are public health uh, kind of look like we're, uh, I don't know, uh, not really taken very seriously. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate because uh, we are we have a lot of really important things to be thinking about and talking about and having really good discourse. And at this point, uh, the lobby is pretty. It's uh, pretty full with uh, very powerful lobbyists, a lot of big money. So I want to switch gears just a little bit um, to ask another audience question here. Um, do you think it would be helpful or harmful to speak of gun violence as a public health issue? Um, the CDC is prevented from treating it as such nationally. Is there any upside to using that kind of language on a local level? Give you guys a break here since you're, <laughs> since you're, carrying, you're carrying most of the water here. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know how you can say it's not a health, a health uh, issue. Um, I, the problem with that and many health issues like that is when they cross over in the political realm and they become a political, uh, a political uh, objective. That's happened here, sure to here at the county level and whether the county should be spending money to gather data on our health and then so we can implement health plans. I mean, which seems obvious to me, but um, I'm not an elected official. Um, yeah, but, be, yeah. yeah, well, no, not, not anytime soon. Um, so gun violence would be the same thing. People are dying from guns. Um, I, I forget how it would rank in terms of deaths in the United States, but guns would be way up there um, along with automobiles. I mean, we did it. We went through a whole thing with automobiles, going back to seatbelts again, um, DUI, uh, we've lowered the uh, rate of DUI um, to, to, to where it's now you know, 0.08. And I think a lot of states are going to lower it even more to 0.04. There's a push to do that, mothers against drunk driving. The whole push against drunk driving and texting um, is, is, I mean, that's a, to me, that's the same thing. It's a public health concern. It has to do with driving. Um, and, but, yeah, we, we tackle that as a, as a society. I'm not sure gun violence, why that would be different other than it's a Second Amendment issue, so I guess that makes it different. 
but to, to not have the CDC, who is our nation's, or I understand our nation's leading health organization, who is in charge of the nation's health, uh, to, to not allow them to tie their hands on anything, uh, to me, it seems silly. Um, can any of you speak to what kind of work is being done to address health issues related to fracking? Maybe that's another one. I know, one I know for this you. one. Okay, I know this one. Uh, wait a minute. Um, yeah, I get all the really good stuff. Fracking. Um, Brian uh, Grimmett, uh, who works for us, he's part of the uh, KMUW and part of the Kansas News Service. Kansas News Service, which I hope you've been hearing on KMUW, is a coalition of national public radio stations in the state of Kansas that has received funding from a variety of sources, including the Kansas Health Foundation, to report on issues and policies regarding health, education, and politics. There's my shameless plug for the Kansas News Service. Um, anyway, Brian has a story actually tomorrow about injection wells and, and, and how the, there's been 1,000 injection wells put in that have all violated state law uh, recently because they didn't do the proper notification period. You're supposed to have X number of days to, to have a public protest or public discussion, and, and they kind of waived that and, or ignored it. Yeah, ignored it, I guess, would be better. Um, and I think uh, there's some thought that, especially in south-central Kansas along the Oklahoma border, that have a lot of earthquakes that started after the fracking began. I mean, it's a fairly, to me, it's a fairly basic cause and effect. Um, they have since limited the amount of water that can be injected, and, and the earthquakes have stopped. So there are other parts of the state now that say, well, why, why wait until we have a problem? Why don't we just put in... Uh, uh, fracking limits now and injection uh, levels now. And so there's bills in Topeka right now. And again, if nothing warms the cockles of an elected person's heart to have someone call them and say, by the way, I vote and I will vote this November, that you'll have their attention if you do that. Emails, emails aren't as good because emails are easily sent out by the dozens and dozens and dozens. Phone call, they'll stop, they'll stop and take notice. Um, so there's bills right now to limit uh, wastewater injection around the state right now. Don't know, don't know how they're going to end up, um, but it is an issue. Um, again, it's a, it's a public health issue in a different way than food deserts are and, and bike lanes are, but it's all I mean, sort of all related to, to health. And, and then, then you get into the whole issue of clean water, um, which we don't have a lot of in the state of Kansas, by the way. Um, so anyway, uh, but the fracking is being a, it's a topic right now. Um, part of it is that uh, with oil prices low, fracking, when oil prices are low, fracking goes away because it's not financially feasible to do it. When oil prices go back up, it'll, it'll, it'll pick up again. Right now it's at a low ebb, so it's kind of falling off the radar. So maybe a follow-up question for you. How do you cover health as a news issue given the wide range of definitions for what health is? Um, I, I think you, you can cover it on all levels. I, don't, I, think, I think that actually makes it easier to cover because it's all related. As long as you tie it properly back to the health issue, everything from food deserts to, to uh, you know, infant mortality rates, which are very bad in Sedgwick County. I mean, embarrassingly bad actually in Sedgwick County. Um, to fracking, to um, all those types of things, obesity, opioids, um, driving. I think you cover all those. All of them have a health angle to them, and you kind of look for that angle and, 
and, and include that in there that, by the way, this is not just a story about opioids, it's also a story about public health, which is, by the way, is another public health crisis that, don't, that we probably haven't talked about yet. So can each of you kind of weigh in on the philosophy behind all of this? What, you know, at what point is it the, any portion of the government's job to, to, uh, uh, to kind of police people on how they're living their lives? At what point is it up to the individuals? Where, where do you all stand philosophically on, on that issue? I remember when we were trying to get clean indoor air in Kansas and some of the legislators were saying, oh, well, you know, you're going to take away people's cigarettes and then next you're coming after my Big Mac, you know, and you were going to have to like buy our Oreos in a dark alley because you're coming after them next. And one of the things that, you know, when, with the, and this is again, you know, my, my interpretation and from the Health and Wellness Coalition is that we really don't want to police people. That's not our intention. We want to provide everybody with equal opportunity to be healthy so that they can live a healthy lifestyle. So people have access to healthy foods. People have access to active modes of transportation. And from that, people do have free will and people will make choices. When I was meeting with one of our um, board of county commissioners not too long ago, he was saying, you know, people should just know how to do it themselves. It should just be innate to know how to to eat healthy or to how to not be obese. And my comment was, you know, are your children's shoes tied today, whether at school? And he said, yeah, I think so, why? And I said, did you teach him how to tie those shoes? And he said, yeah, and I said, that's just it. I mean, not everybody has what everybody else has. And so sometimes people need a little bit more education, they need a little bit more resources so that everybody can live a healthy lifestyle. So we, we don't talk about policing, we don't talk about limiting, we believe in giving people access to healthy options and making the healthy choice the easy choice. So uh, I, I think that there is uh, there's a lot of uh, truth in what what Becky is talking about. I think that um, uh, I, w I don't use the word choice, but I, I do think that making the uh, healthy behavior the default um, is the best, right? So if it, it's not something that you have to be intentional about, so. Um, I, I, I'll give an example uh, that we often think about because we all have to eat. Uh, and uh, there, there's a lot of research around food, and they uh, call it you know, sort of uh, design, choice design, that sort of thing, choice architecture, you'll, you'll hear a lot. Uh, but the idea is uh, if we're going to take the Oreos or plate of cookies, uh, if the plate of cookies is here, uh, Tom is a heck of a lot more likely uh, than anybody in the back row to eat the cookies, uh, regardless of what, it, what it, and he might feel a little protective about them. Uh, if they, uh, the cookies are over here, I'm a heck of a lot more likely than Tom is. Uh, there is a lot of literature, and I know that sounds really silly, uh, but it is part of our environment. Uh, and it, there are uh, really powerful norms that uh, we're not often aware of that very much influence our behavior. Uh, and so uh, when I think about people saying 
you know, I'm not influenced by commercials or by any, you know, that's usually by the person wearing, person wearing a Gap t-shirt kind of thing, right? It, it, it's, uh, we are very much influenced uh, by our environments, by culture, by norms, and uh, so I, I don't really uh, believe in the terms, again, choice architecture, because I think it's a lot more complicated than, like, I've made a decision, I'm going to eat cookies today. Like, it's not quite like that. It's a lot more complicated, and it goes to uh, a lot of the, the costs and, and uh, what's available. Uh, but uh, I, I think the uh, there is a lot, and I'll say one more thing, and then I'll stop, Tom. So, uh, Regarding choice, uh, what I think is a really fascinating idea, so I, I usually use the example of, of ding-dongs and edamame. And uh, that at the exact same time, when I was five years old, my mom exposed me to ding-dongs and edamame at the exact same time, right? So she put them in front of me at the same time. I put both of them in my mouth at the same time. I know. <laughs> I have a weird mom. Uh, and uh, so uh, what happened when I ate the edamame is the same thing that happened when I ate the ding-dong. Like, so, right, so everything that happens in your brain, uh, and I later find out that uh, there's caffeine in it, right? And uh, I learned that these foods that aren't foods uh, have been chemically altered so that I crave it, right? Just like you crave edamame on a bad day, right? Uh, when I go to the convenience store, uh, there are these huge displays for uh, edamame packages, 75 cents each, right next to the ding-dong packages, 75 cents each, right? And uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of this world uh, that we, we reduce it down to the idea of choice. And I'm not suggesting that's where you were going with this. But the idea of, of um, we have changed our verbiage so much uh, in our, our language, we even call them healthy choices. No, they're not. It's food. Like, or not food. <laughs> um, they, they're not healthy choices. They're, it, you know, so it's, it's food or it's, or it's not healthy food. Uh, but we've really internalized the idea uh, to a point that I think it gets dangerous, as if we think that we are in charge of all of these things, and really in so many ways we're pawns. We're a little bit putzes uh, because we are, uh, yeah, see how I'm, the, I know, I am dark destruction and death. And uh, you need more sunshine. Tom. You are wearing all black. I have noticed now, all of a sudden. Purple. <laughs> um, that, that just r real quick on the government thing. I mean, government's already involved in your health care. I mean, if you think they're not, try taking your kid to school without having them vaccinated. Because uh, you can't. So the government mandates you will vaccinate your child unless you, you know, make some, you know, go through contortions to get out of it. So government's already involved in your health care. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing um, uh, in, in, in theory. I think what the government's job is to try to set up structure, like Becky said, to allow people access to health care, access to um, physical activity, access to healthy foods, uh, access to grocery stores, things like that. Um, and then, it, then it's up to you to say, well, I'm going to get ding-dongs or red mama when I go to the grocery store. Um, used to love me a ding dong back in the day, but I'm I'm gluten free now, so I don't I can't eat them anymore. Um, but I can eat edamame. Um, so the government, I think, in a perfect world, would set up a structure that would allow you to um, make good choices, go to them to help 
to help have them help you make good choices, have them provide alternatives or options for you to, to make good choices through information or things like that. But I don't know that we'll ever get to a point where we'll allow them to dictate what we do. But we still don't have a helmet law in Kansas, which to me is I see young people driving by without helmets on their motorcycles. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, yeah, but you have to have glasses on. It's like that just that just seems crazy to me. So, but we, we we've tried that to pass that, and that has gone nowhere. Like that and fluoride, um, have gone nowhere. Um, so I don't think government will ever have final say. But I think there's a way for them to be involved in a way that to help us make good choices, and, and I think, and then allow us to make the choices. I think I'm fine with that. So a little bit closer to home, how do the city and county work together or not work together to implement uh, local health mandates? Do you all see this working cohesively? <laughs> uh, um, I am going to say that that, that I think that um, our city has done a really great job of embracing health concepts um, recently. Uh, the built environment is one of them. You know, they have a, a history of being engaged and interested in health, and I think um, understand the importance and the the line that can sometimes seem dotted between health and economic development. Um, and one of our roles is to try and make it a little bit more solid so that they understand that. I think that our county commissioners maybe, uh, even though they are the Board of Health, that is one of their responsibilities. Um, some of the commissioners, um, not to speak disparagingly, but maybe don't always understand what it means to be a Board of Health and what that role is. And so again, July 17th, uh, please come to our Candidate Forum on Health because you can betcha one of the questions that we're going to ask them is if you are elected to County Commission, one of your responsibilities will be to serve as the Board of Health and what does that mean to you? And so I think that we as folks in our community who care about health and some of us who it's in our job jar, you know, to be in the health field really need to continue to provide resources and education so that our elected officials can make the best choices. Uh, this is another question for you, Becky. Um, are there any plans to offer free or reduced price memberships to the bike share program for low-income or homeless Wichitans? That is a fantastic question, and thank you, whoever asked it, and please join our advisory committee. Um, but we, we completely understand that one of the chinks in the armor of bike share ICT is at this point you have to have a credit card or some sort of payment mechanism to be able to become a member and to utilize the system, and that is for security quite honestly, so that we know who's got the bikes and where they are, and there's some accountability for that, because they are really nice bikes, and because of that, they're really expensive. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to partner with right now, and it's in the infancy, I'll admit, but it's way on our radar, and I have a grant application on my desk that I'm going to try and get completed here in the next couple months. Um, we want to work with the City of Transit to see if we can figure out some sort of agreement or some sort of process. Um, it's more our end still brainstorming, and then when we have have something go to them, but we want to do exactly that so that folks can have reduced cost. We actually are thinking too, wouldn't it be super cool if we also engaged another layer, peeled back another layer of that onion, and for folks who utilize our federally qualified health centers or safety net clinics, and what if an incentive for them to complete um, prevention programs or to comply with their medication adherence is they received bike share ICT passes to be able to utilize bike share ICT for 
for transportation and again, not just recreation. So yeah, it's we have been building the plane as we've been flying it. Uh, we started last May and you know just kind of launching and seeing where it's going and now already seeing all of these really cool opportunities. And, and just one more kind of really interesting thing about Bike Share ICT. Um, number one station, people always ask me, is the pop-up park. That's the most utilized station. The second most is in front of the YMCA, which we think is cool because it's telling us too, nobody just rides to the YMCA for fun. You ride to the YMCA to work out. So that means you're riding it for transportation, right? Um, then the third most utilized station is tie between Exploration Place and Sedgwick County Park, which is probably more uh, in the recreation arena. The number one place that people are stopping that we don't have a station is Clifton Square. So we're gonna put a station there. The second most place that people are stopping in our city that doesn't have a station is the Dillons at Douglas and Hillside. So that tells us again, downtown is a food desert. People are using Bikeshare ICT to get to the grocery store. Uh, so actually that segues uh, well into this next question. So keep you, keep you talking there, Becky. Um, does the Health and Wellness Coalition also work with the bus system to extend bus routes beyond 6 p.m. or to include more grocery stores on the routes? That part you're already... Yeah, and, and again, great question. Um, I don't know if you've seen, we have a new director of transit who's coming to our community. We've heard great things. We definitely will be involved. I attend the transit board meetings as much as I can. Uh, we, of course, will advocate for the city in any way that we would like to see tr our transit system expanded so that more people can utilize it. Uh, and one thing that I would really call out to you is a, is a call to action. So it's, y'all have no idea how bright it is up here. So we can kind of see you, but raise your hand if you've been on a bus in Wichita. Okay. I would like to see everybody be able to raise their hand because many of the people who utilize transit in our community don't necessarily have a voice. And we have to be a voice for the voiceless so that we can help advocate for why the program should be expanded. People say all the time, I see the buses and they're never full. Well, they don't understand the bus system and that they're full going out and they're not full coming back in because they're going to get more people. And you know, so become a consumer. And that's something that we don't do here in our community. People don't really ride the bus as much as we wish they would. If there was more demand, there would be more bus routes and there would be more buses. So one of the things I did last year for my staff, for our staff retreat, is we rode the bus together. And we had to figure out how to navigate the system. And then we rode the bus to lunch. And you know we asked questions and made it educational while we did it. But use the system. If there's a demand for the system, the, the system will change. So please help be an advocate for it in that way. Get on the bus. <laughs> Um, here's another audience question. Uh, Kansas is one of the only states that taxes food. Do taxes on food staples impact public health negatively or positively? Heck yes. We, are, we have the second highest tax uh, in the country uh, uh, for food. Uh, yeah, it impacts us very much. And in fact, Michael O'Donnell, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, was a proponent of a... Uh, bill that went pretty much nowhere uh, to have, was it uh, fruits and vegetables, I believe, to, to uh, remove tax from fruits and vegetables, and that went to the very bottom. Uh, and uh, uh, there is now, uh, there's some talk that uh, this will be, uh, a, at least for foods, that there will be a reduction in the tax um, specifically for food. 
Yeah, Becky. I, I just want to add right now there is a food tax bill out, um, and but I, again, you know, we never lobby. Um, I'm not a lobbyist. I'm an advocate, and I'm happy to do that. So um, I don't tell people how to vote. I just make sure I tell people, you know, when and where to vote, and that they should be aware of what they're voting for. So if you um, want to read something interesting, really read that that piece of legislation because while it decreases the tax on the sales tax on foods, it also then provides uh, it it basically taxes non-for-profits. And so it changes the tax status for non-for-profits. So um, not only associations like my own, but then also boys and girls clubs and Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and different things. So um, sometimes legislation that appears at first blush of being good public health sometimes can have unintended consequences. So I would really encourage you to, to read that piece of legislation quite thoroughly before you make a decision on it. Do you all know of other legislation, potential legislations that are out there kind of in queue? There's, Medi there's Medicaid, but I can't talk about it. If I must, Tom, she's, she's, she's giving up. Oh, my God. Go Where's Jim McClain when you need him? Um, they, that, they had a hearing last week um, about expansion. Um, uh, and, and as always, when they ever have a hearing for expansion, the room is packed, packed with people who are lobbying for expansion. Um, uh, the, the problem is that the current governor, Jeff Collier, uh, is against expansion. Um, he was when he was lieutenant governor, now he's governor. Um, and so the, the, if it was to be passed by the Senate and the House, it would probably be, have to be passed by a, a non-veto, a veto-proof majority, which they didn't do a year ago, and that seems... That seems difficult right now. Um, the state of Kansas today joined a lawsuit with 20 other states asking that the Supreme Court declare the ACA unconstitutional, and we're part of that legislation. Um, they maintain that since the, uh, the personal mandate has been, has been, been removed by the uh, current administration, that it invalidates the whole bill, so they want that, uh, the whole bill to be, to be uh, uh, ruled unconstitutional, so that, that's another uh, I mean, part of the problem that's holding up Medicaid is the future of the ACA and what's going to happen to it, and and will they will it go away completely? Will the government continue to fund 90% of the uh, federal aid that's supposed to go to states? And so there's a lot of uncertainty about that, which I I think is actually a fairly legitimate question. Um, the question is why didn't we get on the you know the train sooner? You can make that argument. Um, to me, the the Medicaid expansion, in addition to being about health care and healthy people, to me it's an unbelievable economic driver. I mean, that is a ton of money, ton of money coming into the state um, that people will need to use for health care services. So they're going to need to go to a doctor and see a nurse and see a dentist and see people. So that means hospitals will have to hire those people. To me, it's just a huge economic driver that we have, you know, for whatever reason, decided to, to pass on. And many other states have as well. But many states who have fairly Republican administrations have joined onto that train and have seen some economic growth as a result. Um, so to me, that to me that's the head scratcher. To me, it's economic development. Uh, Becky, this is another question for you. Uh, does the Health and Wellness Coalition have a stance on gun control? 
Uh, we do not. Um, right now, we have issues that are of concern to us that are um, state and local, but our main emphasis in the Health and Wellness Coalition is physical activity and healthy eating. And so um, other issues than that, you know, we're, we remain pretty neutral. I am, as I mentioned, with the Kansas Public Health Association, and we do have part of our legislative platform that we're interested in gun control, So, but not locally with the Health and Wellness Coalition. What are some areas that maybe we haven't delved into yet? Have we have we covered all the big things, or are there some things that people are just mostly unaware? Oh, I okay, go ahead, Elizabeth. Just go go ahead. <laughs> okay, so uh, something that I think is is uh, really uh, it's something that's been uh, hidden in many ways uh, is. It, the issue of water. We, we talked a little bit about water uh, in our state and having sufficient water. Uh, our 50-year plan has really been uh, reduced to water quantity uh, and not looking at quality, which is a, a real problem. Uh, but uh, so there, and because both are, are needed and necessary. Uh, there's also an issue that uh, has been uh, a relatively recent topic for me to learn about, and that is groundwater. Uh, <clears throat> we have a, a pretty serious set of groundwater problems, uh, and, and it's not specific to Wichita, it's not specific to the state or even the United States. Uh, there are a number of different contamination sources. Uh, dry cleaning is one. Uh, many of you are probably very familiar with West Wichita and what is often deemed uh, called the uh, Four Seasons Dry Cleaners. Uh, that is just one of many, many sites across this state uh, that have been identified uh, uh, as, as contamination plumes. Uh, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is that uh, they're just with going with dry cleaners and just one of many sources of potential contamination. Uh, there are some uh, policies that the legislature has passed that makes it really difficult uh, for public health to be protected, uh, and it makes it very difficult uh, from a, an individual level uh, at a, a city level and at a state level. Uh, so for instance, uh, with West Wichita, the uh, Four Seasons Dry Cleaners, uh, there were two actually dry cleaners uh, that had been disposing of their uh, their contaminants, uh, predominantly PCE and TCE, uh, that are used as a part of dry cleaning uh, regularly. Uh, and historically, in this area and uh, internationally, uh, the way that dry cleaners disposed of these contaminants was uh, through a dumpster or through a sewer line. And uh, that was not uh, an unaccepted practice. That was a very common practice. Uh, and it wasn't until, and hold on to your seats here, the 1990s, and I'm not kidding, uh, that we started changing things and realizing, hmm, you know what, I bet we're contaminating some things. Uh, so uh, we've identified a number of areas that, uh, just in the city, uh, that have uh, had dry cleaners, and the, the problem with West Wichita, what was identified in the Four Seasons dry cleaner area, is that these folks were not attached. They were not connected to municipal water. So they were using their own non-public wells. Uh, 
meaning that these folks um, in, in, in this area, they had been exposed for potentially up to five decades uh, of, of this uh, contaminants that are known to be carcinogenic, so cancer-causing. So, uh, and, and loads of other types of, of health conditions that are related to this. So, uh, when it comes to policy, we see that uh, at the state level, uh, there was uh, a policy that was passed to try to address this, a dry cleaners uh, trust fund. <clears throat> uh, was established and uh, in agreement with the dry cleaners, uh, it was determined that the state of Kansas, the, in other words, the Public Health and uh, Environmental Authority, or Kansas Department of Health and Environment, would be unable to, um, uh, they would need to find the sites as a part of the normal course of their business. Uh, in other words, uh, they could not be mapping out all the places that had uh, dry cleaners on them historically and do some testing to see, huh, I wonder if we have a problem. On top of this, the uh, legislation also strongly encourages that uh, <clears throat> these sites are remediated uh, by the state as opposed to uh, n placing these sites on a national priority list, uh, which means Superfund site, which means we could get federal funds uh, to actually remediate. And what we're doing now instead, because we have no funds to do this, or very little, uh, very inadequate funding, uh, we're just connecting some people up to uh, municipal water. So uh, literally, the, the trickle down of this problem continues. Uh, so the people who are downstream uh, are going to be in the same situation. So we're not remediating. Uh, we don't have the funds to do that. So we have some real problems uh, in just with dry cleaners alone. There are 162 sites of known contamination in this state alone and we don't have the funds to be addressing it. So there's been, there have been delays in West Wichita. It was, I'll stop after this. There was a, uh, a five-year delay in uh, people notify, being notified that they were using contaminated water. And uh, in what we know in Hayesville, uh, just uh, what, six months ago or so, uh, seven years. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is absolutely uh, atrocious, it is not, public health, and uh, we have a lot of work to do. That's just a, an example of, uh, of issues that we don't talk about, and, it, and it's not raised to the surface, so we don't think that it's a problem. And so we have a lot of work to do. Another shameless plug, if you go to KMU.org and look up, Brian Grimmett wrote about and reported on, wrote about, there's the eagle to me coming out, <laughs> uh, wrote about and reported on a broadcast story about the Hayesville issue and, um, and they're, they're sort of the uh, Band-Aid approach right now. There are so many sites around the state, so many sites in Sedgwick County, but it goes under the rhetoric because most everybody has city water, so you don't even think about it. I just turn on the tap and I got clean water. But there's a lot of plumes all over Sedgwick County in the state, dry cleaning plumes that they'll never, they'll never get to because the, the fund that they set up is pretty minimally, uh, has minimal expenses in it. They won't be able to fix all those. On that note, well, let's let's sneak in one more question. <laughs> one last question for you guys. Can uh, one of you speak on the public health impact of marijuana legalization, as well as industrial positives or negatives regarding uh, industrial hemp? Anyone? Anyone? 
<laughs> I, I will say this. I know that the um, Kansas Health Institute, yeah, KHI, Kansas Health Institute, uh, has conducted a uh, health impact assessment on the legalization, I believe, of medical marijuana. Um, and so I've not read it, so I can't speak on that, but um, I believe that it would be on their website. So Kansas Health Institute's website would have that information. Becky, can you give us a little ray of hope before we, before we end this? <laughs> Thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> I, I was actually going to end by saying I don't want to be the rainbows and you know unicorns. Please do. But, Just go ahead. Um, you know, I, I think that I see so much positive change in our community, and I, I am grateful. I intentionally drive down the streets that have bike lanes, and I make my staff ride with me, and I always say bike lane. And it's just progress. I remember when the first bike lanes went in, and I I thought, oh, that's great. And now they're just kind of common, you know, and, and we're kind of getting used to them, which is great. But let's, again, remember to thank our elected officials and the staff from the city of Wichita who have made that happen. Um, and, and just from my perspective, you know, I don't, many of you maybe aren't in the health field. You're here because you're concerned citizens, and that's incredibly exciting and energizing to me. And I would challenge each of you to find one thing that makes you passionate and excited about our community. If you're interested in water fluoridation, get interested and get involved. If you're interested in physical activity and healthy eating, join the Health and Wellness Coalition. If you want to learn more about the Community Health Improvement Plan for Sedgwick County, join the Health Alliance. Even if you can't attend every meeting, just get on their distribution list and learn more. And then, I again, I'm going to ask you all to raise your hands, and it's kind of hard to see, but how many people know who their city council member is? Okay, not everybody has their hand up. How many people know who their county commissioner is? Not everyone has their hand up. How many people know who your elected officials are at the state level? Even less, right? So know who they are. Reach out and start a connection with them. They want to hear from you, that you are their constituency, and they should be voting based on what they're hearing from you. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. And some do it better than others. I'm, I'm with you on that. But I am just so excited to see where Wichita is going to be five years from now if we keep making the progress that we have in the last couple of years. And I tend to repeat this at uh, Engage ICT events but one of, the, uh, one of the talks that we had in the first year of our Engage ICT series uh, was about the environment. And in that talk, one of our panelists said that she was speaking to one of our representatives uh, at the time who had told her if he receives three uh, messages from the public, whether they're phone calls or emails or whatever, three about one issue, he pays attention and he does something about it. He goes and does something. And that's, you know, we have that up here on the stage. I mean, you know, that's not hard to get there. So anyway, I, I just wanted to put that out there as well. Um, let's have a huge round of applause for our panel. Thank you guys so much for being here. We have a little bit of time. Uh, they'll stick around until about 7.30 if you want to come up and ask them other questions. Um, and I want to invite you all to come to our next Democracy on Tap panel discussion. It will be Tuesday, March 13th. That's just two weeks from now because we had to delay this one. Um, so it's coming quickly. But it will be the third in our series on social health. Um, with that one, we'll talk about public safety. Uh, and we have Chief 
Chief Snow, our fire chief, as well as some other excellent panelists joining us that time. So uh, join us in two weeks, March 13th, uh, for public safety. And thank you again for coming out tonight. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Torin Anderson, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.